Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of the Grateful Dead. This is episode one, High Time. It's our first episode of our journey through these eight albums in your box, and the first time we'll be covering the studio albums. Today, we're talking about Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which are arguably the Dead's most popular studio albums, and what I ultimately thought was an exciting and accessible place to start my own Dead journey. As I learned in this episode, though, accessibility isn't the only reason they're a great entry point. These albums, and particularly the first, Working Man's Dead, present an incredible narrative and the perfect groundwork for appreciating the rest of the dead material that you'll make your way through over the course of this anthology. Working Man's Dead and American Beauty were both released in 1970, recorded in quick succession to one another, and are most often framed as two parts of a whole. To start us off, I sat down with Buzz Poole, a music writer and deadhead who wrote the 33 and a third book on Working Man's Dead that helped me hear the album as the perfect distillation for who the dead were at the time, who they were before that, and where they were headed. This is Buzz kicking us off with a rundown of his own personal dead journey. I had an older cousin who who gave me um, In the Dark back when it came out in 1987 as a cassette. And I was, I was, um, you know, 12 or 13 years old at the time. And I thought it was cool. And, and I had caught glimpses of MTV and the video and, you know, it didn't mean a whole, a whole lot to me other than it was something that older people I looked up to were, were into this. Um, and then I had someone in high school who had been, who was older than me and had been taping dead shows starting in the mid eighties and would feed me tapes that he made. And then also all these, you know, the canon of the grateful dead, you know, Barton hall, Cornell, five, eight, 77, anything from June of 1974. And, and I really liked it. It just resonated with me. Um, and then I fell in love with the single from Mars hotel, Scarlet begonias. And it was just such a happy summer, bright sun driving with the windows down song um and so i already had this 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 pull to it and then i went to my first show in the summer of 93 and i was uh, at at giant stadium at the meadowlands in um, right outside of new york and um i was 15 and a friend's mother drove us and it was this incredible circus for adults and it was unlike anything i'd ever seen before and i was just hooked and i was hooked from the experience of wandering around the parking lot for hours outside the show in the rain and then going in and actually seeing the music because I, I I was already fairly familiar with the music at that point. Um, having been, you know, collecting tapes and, and listening to all these, these great shows. Um, and that, that was, that was it. It sold me. And then at the same time, I've always been a fan, a lifelong reader and, you know, drawn to, to literature and as that kind of evolved, my my taste developed um, for 20th century American literature in particular. I went the way of the Beats and people like James Baldwin, and 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 then I would read these interviews with the dead and and see the crossover with the Grateful Dead and and their you know starting in 1965 and with you know American popular culture, American counterculture, and in particular um, something that really caught me garcia famously said that you know following around the dead is about as close as you could get um 
in the 80s and everything to, to having that kind of Kerouac on the road experience. And that to me was a very appealing notion. Um, and I never had the chance to go, you know, on the road for a tour with Following the Dead, but just the adventures and making the trips for, down to Washington, D.C. or out to Long Island for where I grew up in Philadelphia uh, was was thrilling. And um, and that's you know, that's that was that was my development. That was my kind of introduction to being a deadhead. And um, it just hasn't slowed down. That's awesome. OK, so what I'm hearing you saying and a lot of a lot of deadheads, um, it seems like the the live element, the live tapes, and as well as like the adventure and the spontaneity and the, the sort of culture around the dead, it, it gets a lot of airtime um, in terms of like when you're trying to get into the dead. And it almost sort of feels like the studio albums are this sort of underrated or um, like sort of counterintuitive element of the dead. So I'm kind of wondering like, what do you think the merit in knowing and loving the studio albums are as a as a budding deadhead? I think it's really important, uh, actually. And um, and Working Man's Dead is a critical pivot for the band. You have to understand for for those who are not, you know, already steeped in this. The Dead started, you know, they thought of themselves as a dance band. When they started as the Warlocks in 1965, they were doing lots of blues covers, and they were a dance band. And their first couple albums were mostly uh, the self-titled um, album, Grateful Dead, had uh, a bunch of cover songs on it. And um, and then you had Oxamoxoa, which was getting into that tripped-out, weird sound collage thing with songs like What's Become of Baby. Um, and China Cat, Sunflower, and Dark Star, and then you have Live Dead that came out at the end of 1969. So um, those are all three. Those are three official Grateful Dead albums. Live Dead, of course, was live, but it was it was live in that it was pulled from several different sources. Um, but the first two studio albums reflected that psychedelic warrior tendency. But at the same time, as as they were doing songs like Dark Star or, you know, stretching out a song like Caution for 25 minutes, um, they were also doing folk tunes. And whether it was a, a, a cover of Bonnie Dobson's Walk Me Out in the Morning Dew or traditional songs like Cold Rain and Snow or We Bid You Goodnight, they were always very... Uh, clear about their interest and uh, enjoyment of playing, you know, traditional American folk music, um, roots music. And so what you have happening with, with Working Man's Dead, and then it, which, you know, came out in June of 1970, all the songs on Working Man's Dead were first debuted uh, over the course of kind of the second half of 1969. And then later in 1970, with the release of American Beauty, um, is the dead, and particularly with Working Man's Dead, Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter really strengthening their songwriting partnership in a way that we re re reflected their longstanding interests in American roots music and taking it and and making it really speak to the moment. Now, and it's also important to know that you know the dead were not the first ones to do this. 
Dylan did it. Uh, the band did it. The birds did it. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young did it. And in fact, um, a lot is made of the idea that the dead were really in, in influenced by the vocal stacking, the harmonic vocal stacking of CSN on Deja Vu, which of course Garcia played pedal steel on for Teacher Children, and and the, all these guys were hanging out, and 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 Crosby and and Garcia had actually known each other. They might have even met cross paths in the in the late fifties, but certainly in the early sixties. Um, and um, but Garcia and Robert Hunter had long been been you know, they, Jerry Garcia made a road trip cross country to go come out South to, um, from California to, to check out bluegrass festivals. You know, th- this was part of their, their DNA, their musical DNA and, and things like what the, uh, Harry Miller and his, his folk anthology and the Lomaxes and, and having documented so much American roots music and then taking all of that kind of stored up knowledge and then projecting it onto the Grateful Dead sound, which which was at this time um, this seven-headed psychedelic beast and and kind of fusing it all together. So that's a long-winded way to answer your question of, of Working Man's Dead is is a critical uh, album to to understand the Grateful Dead's kind of arc as a band from 1965 to, to 1995. So you touched on this just a little bit but it's fairly well known that the dead had some trouble kind of capturing their sound in the studio prior to working man's dead and American beauty. Um, what conditions do you think led them led to them sort of, you know, hitting their stride with these albums, especially compared to what they'd done previously in the studio? The the dead had one priority, you know, so apart from being a dance band playing music, it was about having fun, ditching the straight life and just doing everything on their own terms. And so they never went looking for a record deal. It came to them. It came to them in the form of a Warner Brothers executive flying up from Los Angeles to see a bunch of shows at the Fillmore and realizing that here's Jefferson Airplane. They have a record deal. Here's Janis Joplin. She's got a record deal. Here are these guys that don't have a record deal. So we'll give them one. And they were then able, then they said, well, hey, Wow, this is unexpected. So we're going to do exactly what we want to do. And they did the first album and you know it 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 was it was what it was. And then with Oxamoxoa, they really had been then at that point, you know, they they've had all these experiences of the acid tests um and these um just wild collaborative community-based family-based psychedelic experiences. And that is what they tried to capture with Oxmox Soa. And that's what drove Warner Brothers crazy. And that's what also got them into debt to the label, was that they spent hours and hours and hours trying to record thick air, right? And, and or, or like running nitrous tanks and, and just getting really, really high and silly and goofy and, and kind of forgetting about what they're doing. So that's a backdrop to then everything going on with Owsley Stanley, Bear, the great LSD chemist, and also the the Dead's great patron saint, um, financial patron saint, as well as kind of engineer of their sound system, um, which was basically came down to boiling of capturing the sound of what is heard. Um, you know, it's not the sound that's that is made, but the sound that is heard, which which is gets into that kind of personal experience and individual experience of of the Dead. Um, 
And they kind of mastered that with Live Dead. And they brought those elements of, of that into the studio for Working Man's Dead, which was made a lot easier by just the virtue of a very different kind of instrumentation. Um, so I, I think the Dead, it wasn't about them having a hard time capturing what they wanted. It was that it was very hard to capture what they wanted, and they were willing to, to spend the time and resources to, to get as close as they thought they could. Which is what they did, and what it was they did forever, really. Um, that's what have that's what the wall of sound is is kind of born out of um, working with with Bear and and Alembic and Ron Sham and all those all those folks. What do you think makes this a good album for someone to start their dead journey with? Well, on on the most surface level, the eight songs on the album are ideal points of entry into learning about the Grateful Dead. They have some of the, well, probably the two best known Grateful Dead songs on them, Uncle John's Band and Casey Jones, which when they came out in June of 1970, enjoyed radio play and have since, um, you know, on commercial radio, on college radio. Um, so it's it's very accessible music. And also then you can, Uncle John's band was one of their primary vehicles for improvisation in the seventies, especially in 73, 74. So um, you can start kind of dipping your toes into the, the Grateful Dead as a more opened up, you know, band rock band that improvised deeply um, with this album. And then also, which is a big part of what I try to put together in the book is if you kind of peel back the the surface layers of the music, you can, I, I believe that um, Working Man's Dead is an incredible microcosm narrative arc of the Grateful Dead's career, starting off from the 1965 and the kind of heyday of the acid tests through the summer of love into 1969 when these songs were written. And this burgeoning sense of self-awareness, um, particularly with, with Garcia and Hunter, about what they've been through, what they're going through at the time when these songs are, are taking shape, and what they are already kind of anticipating happening down the road. So this is like a song, the second track on the album, High Time, is a conditional song. We They've had a high time, um, and maybe we will again someday, but you know, things are changing. Uncle John's Band, the opening track on this on the album, you know, has these kind of mottos like, won't you can't, I, I beg that you call the tune. It's it's this kind this idea that the band and the audience aren't that different from one another. In fact, they're all in it together. It's a shared experience. Um, later on, you have New Speedway Boogie, which speaks to directly speaks to everything that happened at the Altmont Free Festival in December of 1969. Um, and and you know Hunter Robert Hunter made no secret about that. He was you know he wrote that song in a matter of of days to as a direct response to to the fallout from that in particular what the um the san francisco chronicle writer ralph gleason had had been reporting the whole time um and the dead's responsibility and, and role in that um and and also again then you can telescope these out and what i do in the book is telescope these out into through the 70s 80s and and into you know up till 1995 it's about cumberland blues and this story of a minor having to, you know, walk the line just to pay his union dues and, and this being trapped in this kind of straight life that, you know, most of us are trapped in, but the dead being very, you know, um, willful about 
avoiding that at all costs. And that's why they created their own record label. That's why they they created their own ticketing service. That's why they had their own built their own sound system from the ground up. They 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 wanted to do things their way and on their terms. And that's all in Working Man's Dead. So I think it's it is the album to to come to the Grateful Dead through um, because from there you can get anywhere. So I'm also curious um, from a slightly more personal perspective, like you as a deadhead, I'm sure you have a number of favorite dead albums you could write at length about. Um, I'm curious if you were considering writing about a different dead album and why you ultimately landed on Working Man's Dead. Well, I landed on Working Man's Dead because of kind of what I what I just said. I, I thought it, I think it's it it is the perfect gateway. It's the gateway drug to the Grateful Dead. It's it's the way to hear really what they would do for the the rest of their career. American roots music has this great tradition of borrowing from all over. And you know when we talk about bluegrass or um, folk music. We're talking mostly about various strains that came over across the Atlantic with immigrants. Um, but there's also this, you know, I think a really important aspect of, of traditional music as the Grateful Dead understood it was taking something old and making it new in the moment. And that's something the dead did throughout their career. Um, and they did it from a songwriting perspective, from a technological perspective, um, and and so Working Man's Dead is is really the the first place where it kind of all clicks into place in the best way, and it is most reflective of ultimately what the entire band was interested in doing, and being able to take a song like Uncle John's Band, and you know, which is just a few minute song on the album, and then turn it out into a you know, a, a 25 minute segue that comes in between the song playing in the band uh, is is remarkable. And it's taking, you know, traditional folk music, and then also jazz, the, the you know, the, the core improvis- improvisational nature of jazz. Um, and, and so that that's, that's, you know, that's uh, from a, a more kind of crass, commercial perspective. Um, you know, I, I it, I, I understood that it had to be, you know, I think you could write about Live Dead, um, but that, like you said earlier, it, everyone talks about the Grateful Dead and the live recordings. Um, so Live Dead, it would be probably better to talk about standalone shows. The first two albums, you know, have the, they're great, but they, they're a little wonky. And, and then American Beauty is a great album with incredible songs on it. And, and probably, you know, song for song, some people would probably argue that they're the greatest songs of, uh, or, you know, Truckin', Sugar Magnolia, um, Ripple, Box of Rain, all these songs that people adore. Um, but to me, it's a collection of songs, whereas Working Man Dead tells a story. Um, and, and again, that, that's kind of the core of, of what I wanted to do with the book was to be able to, uh, tell the story as I understand it, as I've kind of interpreted it in a way that could be interesting for deadheads and, and the uninitiated. Yeah, it absolutely does that. I did find there's just so much material, material out there on the dead. And I wasn't really expecting a book about one singular studio album to be the most kind of helpful entry point 
Thank into you. my dev journey in this project. And I, I um, would definitely recommend it to anyone listening or anyone like wanting to get into the dead for the first time. Of success. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so if I'm sitting down doing like a deep listen to Working Man's Dead as like a new listener, what should I be listening for? What are the albums or like the moments on the album, songs on the album, lyrics that that would be good to keep an ear out for in your book? You know, I... I, I it... <laughs> I'm going to give you the, the, the ultimate, you know, deadhead response of the guy who wrote a book about the album, all eight songs. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a perfect, it's a, it's a unified piece of art. So I, I do believe it's like looking at a painting. I do believe it's like reading a book, um, uh, especially a book or watching a great film. There's a beginning, middle and end, and you you can choose out tease out little parts and favorite scenes, but it, the way it stands as a, as a unified whole is, um, is remarkable. And there's a reason people are excited about still listening to it and talking about it and writing about it 50 years after it's come out. Um, that said, I, uh, you know, uncle John's band is an incredible song and it is the perfect way to introduce listeners to kind of the Grateful Dead ethos of that that is a carryover from the acid tests of this this core idea that the band and the audience are not separate. That when you gather to listen to this music and especially in the live setting, but but I, I think it does um carry over to to the listening of it to the listening of to the album, is that there is no space. That that space between the stage and the audience is um, is broken down, and so when you have um, you know come here, Uncle John's band, this kind of Pied Piper, come along with me, won't you come along? Um, the, it, it's the dead really setting the listener up to understand that you know, like we're we're on this, we're the Grateful Dead, we're on this adventure, but we want you there with us because in fact we need you there with us. This doesn't work if we're just in the you know, it playing to ourselves, if we're just rehearsing that, that so much of this power, the, the emotional, um, power of the Grateful Dead for, for, for those whom it resonates with, you, you need the, the, the crowd there. You need the audience there in the same way that punk is, is much more visceral experience when you're, you're in the room with the band playing, you know, as great as it can be to listen to, to, you know, black flag at very loud volume at home or in your through your headphones it's much better to be in the room with it um and so the, the uncle john's band really sets that tone for the album and also for someone who's really just trying to understand the dead i think new speedway boogie is another really important song um in terms of robert hunter's self-awareness about what the dead were we're up against um, with everything that comes along with the kind of the change from this, you know, from 1960s to 1970s. And um, he, he was, he was prescient in that sense. And um, he took this tragedy of Altamont and really, you know, one way or another, one way or another, this darkness got to give, they, they are understanding that there is this darkness looming around them, but they, you know the, the the dead had a very 
Eastern or kind of psychedelic psychedelic version of Eastern philosophy, yin yang, that where there's darkness, there must be light. And that's how they were able to kind of forge ahead really throughout their whole career of, of understanding, well, you know, this went bad, but you know, that means something good is bound to happen at some point. Um, new, new speedway boogie is a, is a great look into that. And then I would also say the, the other song that, um, it, it's, it's a bit of an outlier from outlier from, um, the rest of the album, but Easy Wind, which is a song, the only song in the album that that Robert Hunter wrote uh, both the, the lyrics and the music for, and the only song on the album sung by Ron Pigpen McKernan. And, and this is really important for a few reasons. Uh, for one, before Jerry Garcia became Jerry Garcia, um, the, the real front man of the Grateful Dead was Ron Pigpen. And Pigpen was just this boozy, blues swaggering lovable man who uh sang played harmonica and would um and played some keyboards um and but would be the one who would really whip the crowd up and whether it was on a song like love light and just breaking it down and and rapping it at at various people in the in the audience and encouraging you know the guys to get with the girls and to you know just being very salacious with with his rants sometimes um and and but also being able to sing a song like um the stranger two souls in communion just you know heartbreaking songs um and with easy wind which hunter wrote for Pigpen as this kind of robert johnson tribute you you do get this taste of the dead as a blues band which is a big part of their their history um but then Pigpen ended up dying in 1972 or the beginning of 73 but it's nice to get Easy Wind on the album because it's um, it's a nice testament to him. So scaling back a bit and looking at the album as a whole, um, and you touch on this a, a bit in your book, but um, the bare bones production of this album and kind of folksy nature of this album is sometimes kind of framed as being a relatively like a product of a, a pretty small budget and little studio time um and my question is in what ways was this kind of a blessing for the album it, it was definitely a blessing for the album although i i think i i think there's a lot more made of the extenuating circumstances that were that were very real um but uh, so it, th those being the debt to warner brothers which is huge. Um, and they had already started to pay back that debt though with live dead, which w had some commercial success. So, um, the debt, you know, the, the debt was a result of the, you know, extended studio time and, and production time that, uh, Oxamoxoa recorded, uh, required. Uh, so they put out live dead partly to, to start chipping away at that, uh, debt without having to go into the studio again, you know, aside from the mastering. Um, and then Lenny Hart, Mickey Hart, uh, one of the drummers in the band, uh, his, his father, Lenny had been the dead's manager and Lenny was a longtime grifter. And he had in fact fleeced the band of basically all of their savings um, and had kind of disappeared. And so that was a, a, an emotional psychic blow to the band and particularly to, to Mickey. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a betrayal of the highest order. So these, these are very, very real factors that said, 
these new songs were all first played live on stage starting um, in June of 1969. They are reflective of of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter's long-standing interest in American traditional music and of using it to to evoke to to take some kind of old-time imagery and evoke very contemporary sentiments. Um, and that was what they had already been working on. At this time, you know, it, earlier in 69, um, uh, Jerry Garcia and Mountain Girl um, and their kids are, are living in a house in Larkspur up uh, just across the Golden Gate Bridge in, in Marin County, and Hunter moves in with them. And so Hunter and Garcia are living together and there is this sense, and this is, I'm talking now we're back in 1969 and they are basically staying up all the time, smoking, watching TV, Garcia is running through chords um, and changes. Hunter is furiously scribbling away on, on notepads and they kind of are, and sometimes they're together. Sometimes one of them's upstairs, the other one's downstairs and they'll kind of come up to one another and say, here's what we've got. And these songs start taking shape. Um, and so by the time we get to February of 1970, which is when the, the dead went into the studio to, to record Working Man's Dead, they already had a pretty good sense of what they were going to do. And they knew what the songs were. Um, Oxamoxoa was, you know, making an album in real time uh, and, and, and just kind of writing that out. Working Man's Dead, there was a concept. Bob Matthews, one of the producers on the album, had uh, taken a rehearsal tape of these songs and had already sequenced them, sequenced them in a way, in the same way that like Sgt. Pepper's is sequenced, to tell this story, to have a, a very meaningful beginning, middle, and end. And his sequencing is what we, we know today as Working Man's Dead. So it they got in there and they did record quickly and they did make it a bare bones recording, but that's because what that's what the songs called for. That's what the moment called for. And everyone agreed to that. Um, if they had wanted it, because the dead, the dead didn't kowtow to anyone. They just never did. Um, it's one of the greatest things about them. Um, so, you know, they, the, they were all about doing things on their own terms. And the terms of Working Man's Dead is what we hear on the album today. So you brought up Bob Matthews and you spoke with him along with a number of other notable contributors contributors to Working Man's Dead, like um, Betty Cantor Jackson and Stanley Mouse um, while you were writing your book. Um, can you share any insights or memorable conversations that you had during this process? Oh, sure. I mean, it, it was great to speak with, with Ron. Oh, so with Bob and Betty, um, and Ron Wickersham, who is a, is really also a key player in all of this, as he was uh, more of a technical engineer and had been very involved with um, uh, Owsley, uh, uh, developing, you know, how to mic the band and how to record the band, you know, and, and he has a great line in the book where, you know, he said in the studio and, and Ron also, um, he told me right off the bat when I spoke to him, he goes, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you if you want gossip. You know, I'll talk to you about the work, but not the gossip. And there was a sign that he would keep up in the uh, engineering room 
that was basically did the same thing. Like we're here to work. And, and what he says is that, you know, we were, we all knew this was important music, that this was, this was important folk. It was like important folk music. He wasn't calling it folk music, but that, that it was something that was truly ingrained in the American spirit. And that this was the dead really capturing that in a way that, the band captured it or Dylan captured it um, and the dead doing it for the first time um, with working man's dead. Uh, you know, Stanley mouse who his contribution to the album was its uh, cover art, um, which has this, there's a, there's a record label in El Cerrito, California card art called our And, you know, he told me he basically just ripped off the look of our records. And if you look at, the back catalog of Arhuli, you can see what he's talking about, kind of the old timey uh, lettering and and the the framework and a little Art Deco detail. Um, but those those that that cover image, um, he had really pissed off the band because it was you know an unusually hot day in San Francisco, and he was trying to get the photograph just right, and the the band was just kind of sick of it. Um, that's Bill Kreutzmann there, uh, sitting on the stoop of um, of the uh, of the beanery, um, and he wasn't, you know, that's not art direction. He he had kind of gotten fed up with the the process and had said, you know, nuts to this. I'm 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 calling I'm calling it quits. Um, and then something that that is worth pecking around about, if if you're interested, um, Mouse had been with, you know kind of a cohort of the bands from, you know, the, from certainly the summer of love from 1967 onward and doing their, their, a lot of their posters and stuff. Um, and he thought that everything had kind of gotten ridiculous. So he, he, he was really amazed by this kind of somber, serious music that the band was making for this album. And he actually had originally uh, created a d- design, which very much looks like the final one, but with a giant, uh, mole coming out over the roof of where the smokestacks are. And the band just hated that because they, they were trying to be serious. They weren't, this wasn't like a, a, a nitrous acid trip. Ha ha. Isn't that funny? It would be great if we did that. Ha ha. Let's just do it. Um, it was, they were, they were, the band was being much more serious about the production of this album. Um, and uh, they really had no, no truck for for Mouse's uh, desire to put the, the 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 mole on the on the album cover, which if you can find images of that on on the on the internet if you're so inclined. I, I think I am. I'd like to see that. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And 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 then it, when you think of it now, I mean, it it just wouldn't fit the the, the these eight wonderful songs, and you know the 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 the, the final artwork is really fitting and really appropriate for the album. Um, I, I think it's, it's a great album cover, but the mole rat there would have just been absurd and, and really inex- inexplicable, you know, even not even like absurd in a kind of way that you can ration, rationalize, but in just this, what the hell is that? You know, who put the, the mole rat on the, on the cover of this album and why? You got to respect him for trying, but yeah, that would be, Oh, absolutely. Out of place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, he, he'd been with the band, you know, they were, they were on that trip together. And, and, you know, if you look at many of his incredibly there, you know, they are iconic posters. Um, there is a very playful, colorful, crazy tripped out quality to them. 
Um, so, you know, he wasn't coming totally out of left field, but he was really trying to make this point. And, and we did talk about this of, of almost calling out the dead, because what's interesting is that when this album came out or even before the album came out, um, but when the dead started doing these acoustic sets and doing these, you know, these, these folky tunes. And then when Bob Weir would get involved with the songwriting of them and doing what, you know, came to be known as the, the cowboy tunes, um, many of which show up on, on his album Ace, um, people hated it. People, people said, no, I want Dark Star. I want China Cat Sunflower. I want St. Stephen the Eleven. I, you know, I want, I want to, I want to get lost in the music. I don't want to be, re, you know, caught up in a story that lasts three and a half minutes. So Mouse was certainly responding to that in a way of, of being like, hey, what happened to the good old Grateful Dead? Um, but the fact is, is the good old Grateful Dead was a constantly evolving beast that had gone from, you know, this great psychedelic music to, to something else and would continue to, to chase its own musical interests, uh, you know, all the way till the end, all the way till 1995 for sure. After I'd heard from Buzz, I also had the pleasure of sitting down with the Grateful Dead's audiovisual archivist and legacy manager as I made my way over to the next album in the box set, American Beauty. Sugar Magnolia, blossoms blooming, that's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river, knew she'd have to come up soon for dare. So I think Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, they're, they obviously came out around similar times and um, like in really quick succession of each other. And we'd see them in this box set sort of lumped together here. And that's like, that's, it's pretty common. And there's obviously a lot of similarities musically. Um, but what are some kind of key differences, like after listening to Working Man's Dead and going into American Beauty that we as listeners can sort of pay attention to? It's interesting. Differences. I, I've focused on these albums for over 35 years um, in terms of their similarities, but they are very distinct albums. Um, I remember about 15 years ago, uh, we were working on a Grateful Dead, uh, a Best of the Grateful Dead release. And I was talking to my brother. He's, a, he's not a deadhead, but he's a, a Grateful Dead fan. He knows the music a little bit. And he said, oh, how many songs will be on it? I said, uh, it looks like we're going to get about 16 or 17. <laughs> And he said, oh, so what are you going to do? Put out Working Man's Dead and American Beauty back to back. And there's your greatest hits. And that's the level of it where the Grateful Dead, there was, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, American Beauty music did start also appearing in early 1970. Um, so it had, again, been road tested for almost as long as the Working Man's Dead stuff was. But it was, again, it was a focus on vocal harmonies. It was a, a focus on songwriting with Robert Hunter's lyrics. Um, Pigpen's influence on the Grateful Dead was beginning to wane in terms of its recorded output. It was still a huge part of their live performances with songs like Turn On Your Love Light. But whereas on the Dead's you know, first record, Pig does uh, Good Morning Little School Girl, and then he, he basically takes over the whole side two of, of Anthem of the Sun, their second album. With uh, with alligator and caution, that's all pig pen. And then by six, by late '69, when Aoxamoxoa came out, uh, Pig's influence on the studio recordings was beginning to wane. And yet, his live presence with songs like "Good Lovin'" and "Hard to Handle" and, of course, "Turn On Your Love Light" was as big as it ever was. So, Pig's kind of influence—he did have a song on each album. Uh, you had "Easy Wind" on the first one, and on "Working Man's Dead" and "Operator" on "American Beauty," but. 
he it was really moving more towards the kind of country uh, flavor of the Grateful Dead, the Americana that uh, you know is the genre we hear now or we have for the last fifteen or twenty years, um, the genre of Americana, and that is what the Grateful Dead were kind of doing uh, fifty years ago. And so, in terms of similarities, there are plenty. Uh, in terms of differences, I mean, I think they learned a lot in recording with uh, in uh, work, working on Working Man's Dead. Uh, one big difference is on. American Beauty, they did bring in an outside producer for the first time in a couple, so well, in, uh, since 1967, since their first album, when Hassinger did it, uh, they brought in Steve Barncard, who was uh, a Bay Area guy who they, uh, they knew from, I guess they knew from around, but he had, um, he, he was really good in the studio and he could really capture the sounds the Grateful Dead wanted to. So Steve Barncard, who produced a few really seminal albums at that time in the early 1970s, including American Beauty. I do think that really did help in terms of making sure that the songs that went on to the record were, I don't want to say concise, they certainly weren't um, necessarily overly short songs, but they packed in every little bit that the dead wanted in those songs in I don't want to say the shortest amount of time possible, but when a song like Sugar Magnolia, which in the live setting, you know, now, I mean, by the you know, 1980s or 90s, would clock in at eight or 10 minutes, and they could still do the same thing in less than four minutes on this album. And the sound, I remember once being in a studio with a, a very, very talented uh, recording engineer, and he was talking about albums that had no superfluous sounds on them. Everything was there for a reason. Everything was incredibly well planned out. Every sound on that album. And he was talking about uh, Steely Dan. He was talking about uh, uh, the Beatles, talking about Paul McCartney records in the 70s. Um, and, and albums that are widely considered to be some of the best sounding records in terms of every single sound you hear on there is there for a reason. There's nothing that shouldn't be there that isn't planned out. And he brought up uh, work uh, American Beauty as one of those albums, and that when I when he told me that that really resonated with me because it I've always noticed that um, I mean I heard by the time I was told this t- almost twenty years ago I had heard that album hundreds of times but I'd never actually thought about that aspect of it that everything was there every single sound was there for exactly that reason it was mixed exactly as it was for exactly that reason and that's one thing I do find about American Beauty I do find both of them to be perfect records absolutely i find american beauty to be one that is truly and i you know to a non-deadhead i would find they i would find somebody having a tough time finding fault with this record and and i do find that also with working man's dead but working man's dead is i mean i think maybe it's the songs maybe it's the dead trying for this approach this stripped down approach for the really the first time that it's maybe a little rougher around the edges than uh, American Beauty's polishedness. And maybe that's also working with Steve Barncard that helped uh, to polish it. And I don't mean in the polishing it to the point of not being Grateful Dead. He polished it to exactly Grateful Dead standards. And to me, it sounds like the quintessential Grateful Dead. And again, it's hard for me to separate the two albums. Um, You know, in another world, maybe this would have been a double studio record, but the Dead, because of, of the way things were in 1970, did it as two albums, five months apart. And I think that's the perfect way to have done this. So you touched on things like song length and just the concision of, of Steve's work on this album. Um, And just this, sounding like the quintessential um, Grateful Dead album, um, which perhaps is is kind of my answer right there. But what do you think 
it is about these tracks on this album in particular um, that really seem to continue to resonate with a, a much wider audience throughout time. I think more than anything, it's the songs. It's the songs themselves. If they were recorded poorly, I think we would still love them. I, I remember once uh, when I was in film school 25 years ago, and this friend of mine, he was probably the most talented filmmaker in my program and the most theoretical film guy. And I went over to his apartment, and you know, at the point at that time, you know, 1995, there weren't big widescreen flat screen TVs, but we all aimed to have the very best viewing thing we we could have at home because we were film guys. And I went to his house and he was watching uh, like a very classic movie on like a 14 inch TV. It might've even been black and white. It was just terrible quality. And I asked him, I said, I said, Brian, what's up, man? Like, this is how you, this guy was a brilliant. And I said, this is how you watch movies. He said, I said, how do you like really enjoy it? He goes, man, he said, I don't care how it looks. I don't care how it sounds. As long as the story's good and, and and he knows that he'll see it someday on the big screen and I'll be great. But as long as the story's good and he's he's engulfed in, in what that story is, he's happy with it. And uh, and he knows that he could you know see it in better quality someday. But when he's at home, he was totally fine with that. And that really that hit me because it, it's similar to this, that if these songs and they certainly are not poor quality. The, the American Beauty is certainly not a 14 inch black and white TV. But even if it was, these songs are so good that even if you were watching them on a 14-inch black-and-white TV uh, or the audio equivalent of it, they would still be magical. And that's because it's got to be really good in order to to last that long. So as your question, why do they resonate here 50 years later? I think it's because they are so good. And it happens that the album was recorded absolutely perfectly for these songs. Uh, the arrangements are perfect. The recording is perfect. The band was incredibly, I think, inspired and at a creative peak, they had a few creative peaks in their in their in their day, uh, several actually um, that you can really pinpoint to some of the best recordings. And you know what made this a great recording? Well, they happen to be at a peak. American Beauty is certainly one of those. So I do think it always it starts all with the songs. Where these are ten absolutely exceptional Grateful Dead songs, and that's a testament to Jerry's you know melody writing and, and Bob's as well, Pigpen's too, but uh, Robert Hunter's lyricism. Um, you know these songs. You got songs like Ripple and Truckin' and Sugar Magnolia and, and Friend of the Devil and Box of Rain. I mean, on and on. Addicts of My Life. These are some of the most well-written songs ever. Period. Not Grateful Dead. Most well-written songs ever that other musicians of extremely high regard, high caliber, uh, still talk about all the time as incredibly important songs to them. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's the songs, and I think add to that how inspired the band was to make a good record, and Steve Barncard, um, you know, and I think uh, Warner Brothers, I think certainly played a hand in that, in that, you know, Working Man's Dead, the Dead delivered a record to, to Warner Brothers uh, in Working Man's Dead, that, you know, I don't know what Warner Brothers thought of it. I think they liked it. I think they must have. But it was a hit right out the shoot. It was it was a hit. So when the dead said, well, we've got another record up our sleeves that's kind of similar in a way a little bit. Um, and, you know, Warner Brothers got behind it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think I, I think you got a, a 50 years ago. Uh, lightning struck twice. And that's incredibly rare. You know, I think a lot of bands in a 30 year recording career are fortunate to get one of these records and the dead did it twice in five months. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it starts with the songs and then everything else, um, was part of that too.
Now that we've spent some time exploring the first two albums in the set, I wanted to send you on your way through the next leg of your dead journey with a clip from my interview with Buzz that really helped the Grateful Dead click for me. I wanted to know why we keep seeing the dead pop up, especially in recent years, and why they continue to have such a lasting impact. Buzz's answer has stuck with me through the course of the past few months as I continue my listening. Kind of, as you said, there's been a surge in some Grateful Dead popularity in recent years, and particularly among kind of a cohort of newer and like younger fans. Um, what do you think has kept the Dead spirit alive all this time, and why do you think their music is resonating with people in recent years? I think the Grateful Dead ultimately is about um, is rooted rooted in a, this very American concept of kind of the the champion of championing the individual and that we all come at things from different backgrounds from different sets of experiences and influences and circumstances and we carry all that with us and then we 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 are confronted with or presented with something new and we can all take it our own way with music and this is true of music in general this is not just grateful dead you do that, but then when you have the opportunity to do it surrounded by other people who are maybe not feeling or understanding it the exact same way you are, but they are appreciating it, it means something to them, it becomes this great kind of this collectivism of, the, of, of myriad individuals. Um, and that is, without a doubt, something that struck me that first time I saw the Grateful Dead with you know sixty five thousand of my closest friends, um, it was unmistakable. And uh, over time, um, I have been fortunate enough to 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 go lots of places and like go to Carnival in in Brazil or uh, go to be be in um, France on the summer solstice for Fête de, de la Musique, uh, where the whole country basically turns out to play in the streets to celebrate the solstice. And these sorts of moments where everyone's kind of doing their own thing, but everyone's doing it together, that's what the Grateful Dead was. And that's what the Grateful Dead is. And so I think that is, and it's it's such a an American concept, but I, you know, I think it's one that transcends beyond our national borders. Um, but people want to be encouraged to let, you know, for, for lack of a better term, to let their freak flag fly. They want to do their own thing. And, and the dead was all about that. Um, and I think especially today with, you know, all of us hemmed in by the ubiquitous, ubiquitousness of, of technology and you know, spending so much time looking at at screens and just kind of being caught up in in our daily grind, that um, to to have that excuse to you know you might not be going on the road for an adventure, but to be able to go to a, a concert and whether it's a Dead cover band or it's um, um, it's Dead and Co or it's a jazz show or it's you know it, it's whatever to be able to go and just kind of let everything go. And, and let the music wash over you, I think is more satisfying than ever in a way. I mean, obviously we're not doing that right now. Um, 
but you know we will be doing that again that of that i'm certain um and so and i think the the dead are one of the kind of archetypes of of that notion or probably the archetype of that notion in american popular culture and it's taken 45 50 years for the culture the the larger popular culture to catch up with it um but here we are and um you know what's amazing is that it happened without jerry garcia being alive it happened um without you know the dead and co is a is its own thing but it is not the grateful dead um and but it's happened because the Grateful Dead has left its fingerprints all over American popular culture from 1965 to today. You, you, those, those, you can, you can find it everywhere. And, you know, I do touch on this in the book and whether it's from sitcoms or from politics, it's, it's there and it, it's, 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 they're, they're indelible. They're not coming off. And I, I think people have, um, we, we now as we, the, we have the perspective, we have the distance between the Grateful Dead being a live an entity to now it being something else and it all its kind of offshoots being very real and meaningful. But when we look back now on the Grateful Dead and that defined as the band that existed between 65 and, and 95, uh, we, we, can, we can better understand its, its importance and its stature in, in the culture. season of the VMP Anthology podcast is executive produced, written, and hosted by Andrew Winnestorfer and me, Amelia Sutliff. It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Jonah Graber. This episode was recorded in my bedroom, so shout out Pandemics. A very special thanks to Buzz Poole and David Lemieux for coming on to talk dead with me and for helping me jumpstart my long strange trip, and hopefully yours too. Remember, listen to more Box of Rain. You say